Welcome to another edition of Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. I'm Anthony T. In this edition, I will be going over my review of Rhode Island Comic Con, which I was supposed to do last episode, but the strike ending pretty much took over the whole podcast episode. So this episode, I will be talking about Rhode Island Comic Con that took place back in November. Then I will be reviewing AEW's Full Gear in WWE's Survivor Series in about 20 minutes or less. I attempted to do this in 20 minutes or less. And the results turned out catastrophic. As you'll see with a very long segment. But that's alright. Since I went over that segment, I don't have much time for the news. But there is one news item I really, really need to get off my chest. That's right. After seems like forever, this film was released in 2021. August 2021. And in mid-December, supposedly, it's going to get released on Blu-ray finally. Yes, we're talking about good old Glenn Danzig and his vampire movie Death Rider in the House of Vampires. Now, this is a film that I've been questioning why this is not going on Blu-ray yet. And in fact, it took them two years. Tells ya, I don't know if this is going to be a good movie. I really don't. I don't even know if I really want to purchase this movie Quite frankly, after the last time I purchased a Glenn Danzig movie. But it has vampires, and I love vampires. They're like my probably first or second favorite subgenre. It's between that and the slasher films. But to hear this film finally get released, it's great. Only problem is, it's only... A limited Blu-ray release on Cleopatra Records' official website. That tells you right there that no distributor wanted to distribute this film. The fact that it had to go to Cleopatra Records. And with the cast this film has. For that film to be distributed by Cleopatra Records is a crime. Seriously. The fact that with that cast, the best Glenn Danzig could do is having the film be released on the record label that releases his own music. That's the best he could do for a release of this film. Really might tell you something about this film, quite frankly. I am not going to go spend the nice going price of... $34.98 for a movie that might be a one-stop film. Not after Glenn Danzig's Veronica. Please put this film on VOD so I at least can see it. Because I am not spending $35 on a Glenn Danzig film. Because the last time I spent money on a Glenn Danzig film... It turned out to be one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. In fact, maybe the worst film I've seen in my life. And yes, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey is up there as one of the worst films I've ever seen. 
But anyway, Glenn Danzig's Veronica still owns that title of worst film ever. So, I don't get why this film is being released by Cleopatra Records. And only on their website. I don't see an Amazon link. I don't see anybody selling it but the record label website. Why? There's also a standard edition of this film for about $26.98. Which is nice, but still a little way too pricey. They're not VS or Severin here, people. You also got the DVD version for about 20 bucks, But still, it feels like it's too pricey. And why would I spend all that money on an unproven director like Glenn Danzig? Seriously, Cleopatra Records. Why is this film not on Amazon? I don't get this company. What? No major stores would take this film? I don't get it. Seriously. Why is this film only on Cleopatra Records website and not on Amazon.com? I don't get it. I really don't get it. It's like they want to have this secret release. That's it. Try to have this release fly under the radar. I don't get it. Seriously. When you release something, you release it to all the retailers, not the website. This isn't an indie company. This is a company that specializes in releasing CDs. So they should be able to release Death Rider in the House of Vampires in retail stores. Not on the official website. That tells you something that that might be a red flag right there on how the movie is. And then again, I could be wrong. And that's the news. Dark Discussions, your place for the discussion of horror film, fiction, and all that's fantastic. A weekly podcast where the discussion is about the most recent horror and genre films. Intelligent talk on a genre that deserves intelligence. A conversation between co-hosts discussing not only the film, but also the connotation that the directors and screenwriters are trying to articulate. If you want more than a review, listen to Dark Discussions. Speaking of perception, there's just one more scene I want to talk about, which is after Caleb discovers that Kyoto's a robot, Kyoto kind of peels off her skin, showing him what's underneath. Now, wait a minute. I know where you're going with this, but tell me you weren't already thinking this 15 minutes earlier in the film. Exactly what he's thinking at that moment. Which is he's a robot, too. Oh, I considered the possibility. Right, and that's what I like, is the fact that the writers were smart enough to know that this is what the audience would be thinking. We've all seen Blade Runner. <laughs> right, <laughs> www.darkdiscussions.com Wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back. I was supposed to get to my review of Rhode Island Comic Con last episode, but because of the SAG actor strike ending, I never got a chance to it. But, recently I had the chance to go to Rhode Island Comic Con that took place from November 3rd through the 5th at the Amica Mutual Pavilion, 
or as I like to call it, the AMP and the Rhode Island Convention Center. As this is the con I always go every year, and every year I talk about it here on this podcast. This year I went as a VIP, which is different, because which was fun. Now my first thoughts on this convention was, it was one of those conventions where it was exhausting. Literally exhausting. It was not one of their best conventions. I'll put it to you that way. They've had better conventions. As there were some things that I did not like about this convention at all. It's like they moved a lot of stuff around from previous years. In the previous years, everything worked out fine. But this year, it's just, there was such disorganization at this convention. It wasn't the worst Rhode Island Comic Con I've been to. Because that was like the third year of that convention. That's the worst. In that year, it's very hard to top if you want to have a worse convention. As that's probably one of the worst conventions I've ever been to. That third year Rhode Island Comic Con. This year... It had some ups and it had some downs. I'll start with the negatives. And one of the really biggest negatives I had about this con was the fact that this con really felt unorganized. And this show's been going on for what? A while. Over 10 years at least. And this felt like a disorganized convention. There was no sign on the third floor, which really made it very confusing to me. When I was trying to find some booths to hit up friends that I met to various kinds, they give you an app saying what number booth they're at. But I could not find which row was row 500, which row was row 700, or I couldn't find, for example, booth 742. I'm just throwing a random number there. Because there is no signage like section 100, section 200, and so on. It really made everything so confusing. It really made me walk around a lot trying to figure out where the booths that I really want to visit. And when you're trying to find that booth you really want to visit, that specific vendor that you want to buy, that you always see at various conventions, and you can't find them because there's like no section signs around. It's tough. Sure, they'll have a number underneath their name tag. As every vendor has like a company booth name plaque or source hung up at their booth, but sometimes the number's so small they can't figure out what number it is. Seriously. Because, literally, that's how I could tell from some what row I was in. Because there was no section signings. If you had section signings, then all over the place, it would be a lot easier to find these booths. But it wasn't. It took a while to find these booths. I don't like that. Seriously. Then, of course, the signage problem carried over to the celebrity area in the third floor, too. And she had, like, maybe four rows of celebs. And she had more celebs in the third floor than you did last year. Which I'll get to in a bit. Why? But 
They usually have a setup where the photo ops are on the third floor and it really made things easier because that last two rows was very hard to navigate through at times because everybody's lining up to meet the celebrities and everything. There's like almost no room to move between ends of the section. And again, you don't know what booths the celebrities are in because there's no signage. That was tough to find. You could find them if they have like this big banner, but if they don't have like a big banner that sticks out, then it literally, it was hard to find. As I had a trouble at first trying to find Orange Cassidy, it was like I was thinking, did he cancel? Because I know Earlier in the day, I woke up to find out that Britt Baker and Dustin Rhodes canceled, along with Dobby Allen. So you pretty much had almost all the AEW stars cancel, except Orange Cassidy, who probably would have canceled as well if John Moxley wasn't in Japan. Because AEW has a show on Saturday nights called Collision, everyone. So that's why everyone was pulled, because Britt's... About ready to make a comeback to AEW. And Dustin Rhodes was on collision. That's why he was not there at Rhode Island Comic Con. At first that was a surprise that he canceled. But after seeing collision and seeing him as one of Mark Briscoe's mystery tag team partners. I can see why he got pulled from Rhode Island Comic Con. Which is alright. I don't mind. I understand AEW comes first. It's just that Rhode Island Comic Con this year really leaned on the AEW guys. And that's not what they should be doing, seriously. Because sometimes they can come on a weekend, sometimes they can't. And once you had three of them cancel, the only AEW guys that were there were Orange Cassidy and Matt Hardy. That's it. And the only other wrestlers you had besides that were... Rikishi and Scott Steiner. So you only had four wrestlers when Rhode Island Comic Con usually has a ton of wrestlers at their conventions. This year, for some reason, they were very light on the wrestling portion. I don't know why. Because I know they brought in two wrestlers for Terracon, but still, Rhode Island Comic Con should have at least a good amount of wrestlers. And it's surprising that I only met one wrestler at that convention. Because usually I meet like three or four of them at this convention every year. But it was not a good lineup wrestling-wise this year. The next major problem I had was the photo op area on Saturday. It felt like a mosh pit. Seriously. The fifth floor of that building felt like a mosh pit. Because they moved the photo ops to the 5th floor this year. As the 5th floor usually had just celebrities. This year they just had half celebrities. Mostly from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And the Breakfast Club. And the photo op room. And as a big guy like I am. I don't like it when I feel like I'm in a mosh pit. Because you don't know who you're going to bump into. It's ridiculous. Seriously. As you're trying to get into that photo op room for your photo ops. And I had two photo ops on that day. 
why I decided to do two photo ops on a Saturday is beyond me. Seriously. I should have canceled that second photo op. But I didn't learn my lesson. Seriously. From the first time. Because first of all, the photo ops I had on Saturday were people who weren't here on Friday. If they were here on Friday, I probably would have done their photo ops on Friday. Because it would have been a lot easier. As usually the days to do photo ops are Fridays and Sundays. But let me fill you in on Sundays. Always pay attention to the photo op schedule. Because everybody's leaving at different times. So that's the day where that schedule usually gets wacky and changes. Because people are trying to get flights out that same day. As that's usually the day that people start leaving around 12.31 to head back to wherever they live. So, whenever you do a photo op on a Sunday, pay attention to the schedule. Because I'll tell you a little more about that experience on Sunday in a bit. But back to the mosh pit on Saturday. It was crazy. I don't know why I did it twice. Well, the first time I did it, it was because I wanted to really... Do the Linda Hamilton, Michael Bean photo op. As both of them starred in the classic sci-fi film The Terminator. Which I view as one of the greatest sci-fi films of all time. I met Michael Bean earlier this year at Terrificon. It was nice also meeting Linda Hamilton. Which is a rare appearance for her. She doesn't do many conventions so I had to jump on this photo op. Both were very nice people. Then I decided to go back around 5.50 to do the Gina Gershon photo op. I know it has nothing to do with horror or sci-fi, but but she's appeared in some cult films and some good films from the 90s and early 2000s like Showgirls, Bound, John Woo's Face Off, and a very underrated independent film, Pray for Rock and Roll. Plus, she's also gaining horror cred. Recently, she was on an episode of Chucky season two, and she was recently in Eli Roth's Thanksgiving, which I did not know at the time when I met her. And it was probably a good thing because we were still under a strike. But anyway, enough with this fifth floor mosh pit on Saturday, because usually I'm going to tell you this right now from going to many conventions. Saturday is usually the day that makes or breaks a convention. It's either going to be a great convention or a bad one. And this felt like it was completely unorganized on Saturday. Then if that wasn't enough with the signage and the fifth floor mosh pit in the photo op area. Which had to be the idea of the fire marshal. Because they approve everything before the show goes on. So that's probably the fire marshal's idea. Because that could have been a fire hazard. Seriously. But what do I know? I'm not a fire marshal. If that wasn't enough, I went to a panel on Sunday for the Brat Pack. Featuring all the 80s icons. Including Anthony Michael Hall, Molly Ringwall... Andrew McCarthy, and Ali Sheedy. Well, when the guy comes and announces, please make sure there's no live streaming or no 
recording what do you think was going to happen when they all came out. People started taking pictures. Sure. And this led to con staff trying to stop people from taking pictures. Because Ron Comic Con usually has this policy that you cannot take pictures during the panel. I don't know if it comes down from the Omni Hotel or it's a con rule. But still, announce to the crowd that they cannot take pictures. Because if you don't announce to the crowd not to take pictures, they're going to take pictures. It just uh, irritated me. Literally, blunder after blunder at this convention. Okay, enough with this negativity. Let's go with what I had a good time. There were positives at this convention. First thing that I liked was the fact that I thought the guests I met were nice. I liked that they brought in guests that wanted to be there. I know one guest looked like they did not want to be there, but I can't say anything about it because, well, I didn't meet the person, but the person's booth was, like, next to a booth where I was waiting in line to meet a certain someone. So I'm not going to go into Hollywood gossip here because it's not a Hollywood gossip show. But I had a great time with all the guests. I got to meet a lot of guests. Starting on Friday with Greg Nicotero. You know him from various recent TV projects like The Walking Dead and Creep Show. He's a true special effects wizard. I also got to meet Hannah Hall from Rob Zombie's Halloween. And played a character that was made famous by Sandy Johnson. That's right, I met the only two people to play Judith Myers in the Halloween franchise this year. I also met Angela Gothals. If I'm pronouncing it wrong, I apologize. She was in the cult slasher film Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which also starred Robert England. But she's mostly known for being in Home Alone. Super nice person and such a sweetheart. I also met Molly Shelton from Scream 4, Scream 5, and Grindhouse. Another very nice person. Met Denise Crosby, who's been in a lot of things, including Star Trek The Next Generation and Pet Cemetery, to name a few. I also got to meet Orange Cassidy on that Friday. Very nice guy. Overall, Friday was a good day. I enjoyed Friday, probably my favorite day out of the three days. Then Saturday was pretty much, yeah, a mess. I first met Gina Gershon, very nice person. I would later go into that fifth floor mosh pit of a photo op area to get her photo op. Because overall, she seemed like a super nice person. I also met John Delancey from Star Trek The Next Generation. Nice guy. And at the end of the day, Saturday, how I managed to meet one more celebrity about like 6.30 or so after going through a mosh pit of a day at the fifth floor just surprised me as I met John Glover. I was exhausted. He was a nice guy. I had a nice time meeting him too. We got to chat about Joe Dante a little bit in his film Gremlins 2 in which John Glover was in. Very nice guy. As I've been wanting to meet him the last couple conventions, but couldn't because 
First convention just didn't have time. Then I was hoping to meet him earlier this year at Terrificon, but he canceled that Terrificon. It was finally nice to meet him finally, as he is a very nice guy. Then Sunday started off with me walking around, checking out various movie props, then meeting Kari Jones, who was in various projects as a creature, and such projects as Werewolf by Night and Predators, to name a few. Then I went to the Brat Pack panel with Andrew McCarthy, Anthony Michael Hall, Molly Ringwall, and Ali Sheedy. I've already went into detail of some of my gripes about that panel. But anyway, the panel was fun besides those gripes. Surprise, Judd Nelson was not at that panel. I thought he was going to be at that panel. He was not at that panel. Which probably is understandable because of the strike and everything. Maybe that's why he didn't want to be there. I can understand that if it's strike related, then that's fine. Then it was back in the Rhode Island Convention Center where I went to the photo op area because it looked... Ten times better than it was the previous day. There was no mosh pit. So I decided to do the photo op for Ron Perlman. And good thing I went to check on his time. By the time I got there, they were already starting the lineup for Ron Perlman's photo op. So it was more like right place, right time. And I did not have to deal with a crazy line. Or a crazy crowd blocking everyone. It was like smooth, with ease, get in, get in line, get my photo op. It was nice meeting Ron Perlman. Then move on along, grab my photo, my digital copy. Then it was drinking my soda because I needed a drink so bad. Because literally, I was going to hide out in the VIP room anyway before I knew Ron Perlman was having his photo op at that time. But it's a good thing I checked the time for the Ron Perlman photo op. And that is the key for everyone who wants to do photo ops on Sunday. Always go up to the photo op area, say, I don't know, maybe when you get in the building or so to see what time this person is doing his photo op. Because they'll say one time at the beginning, but it may change because of flights and everything. So they may do it like earlier. For me, I just lucked out because I didn't check his time until like 10 minutes before his photo op. Not even 10 minutes. They were lining up for his photo op. Like I said, I was like right place, right time, no crowd. So that is a helpful tip for every con goer. If you're going on a Sunday, you will see a time on the website. Don't assume it's going to happen at that time. Get into the building once the building's open. Go to the photo op area and ask them or check on the board what time that person is scheduled for a photo op. He could be scheduled for the exact same time on the website. Or his photo op could have been moved up. It's always a good idea to check the time of your photo op on Sunday. Because they could change the time early in the morning. Because 
After like 11, 12 o'clock, that's when guests start to leave the convention. So they gotta get their photo ops in like right at the beginning of when they start taking photo ops. So people can have their photo ops. Sometimes they'll even list down their websites as well. But me, I would personally just go right to the photo op area to double check the time. Then I did some walking around with Zombie from Two From Hell. Then continued walking because, well, I was trying not to spend any money. That did not work out too well because I met another celebrity right near the end of the convention. More like four o'clock where I met 80 star Keith Coogan. 40 bucks ain't bad for who's been in such 80s films like Adventures in Babysitting, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and the very underrated action film from the 80s, Toy Soldiers, which also starred Louis Gossett Jr., Andrew Didikoff, Sheen Astin, and Will Wheaton, to name a few. That's a good cast, especially for an 80s action movie. And what he was charging wasn't bad for a combo. Probably could have charged a little more if he wanted to, but didn't. Super nice guy. We had a fun time with the photo ops. He was really into those photo ops. As he still had the energy going on at 4 o'clock on a Sunday. And we had a fun time with the selfies. That was definitely one of my favorite highlights of that convention. And probably one of those guys I would bring to every convention. Because you want to bring guys who want to be there. You don't want to bring people who are there that just sign photos all day, are miserable. No, you want people who want to be fun. And Keith Coogan was such a fun person to be around with. Even that late of a day, usually around this time, everybody's either leaving or exhausted. But man, he was such fun to be with. He's one of those guys I wouldn't mind having at every convention. And after that, I pretty much said my final goodbyes to the people I know around the event. And then took off. And another Rhode Island Comic Con in the books. Overall... This convention felt unorganized, but I really had some fun moments at this convention. They had some nice sets, which is a positive as well. Because if I started mentioning these sets, we'd be here for another five minutes, and we're over as is. Well, anyway, those were fun too. But I thought there were some cool guests at this convention, which I liked a lot, and Even though this is an unorganized convention, there were some positives which I enjoyed. As Friday and Sunday were very good days. It's just Saturday was a complete mess. And usually Saturdays are what judges a convention. I know Rhode Island Comic Con will bounce back from this. As they'll probably come up with some plans from for next year. Especially to avoid the disaster of that photo op area on the fifth floor. Find some way to deal with it. But still, I probably would attend this con next year. As they've already announced dates for next year's Rhode Island Comic Con. It'll take place November 1st through the 3rd in Providence, Rhode Island at the same venue. And with that, that is my look into 
the 2023 Rhode Island Comic Con. Hi, I'm Anthony T. And I'm director Andrew Duran. And we are the Two Two From from Hell. And we're putting Rated R back into podcasting. Every month we will be dropping an episode on the Doc Discussions Network. We'll be chatting about some of our favorite films, news, reviews, and maybe interviews. You can find Two From Hell on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast providers. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at Two From Hell Podcast. Trust me, you're seriously not going to want to miss the show. Every day there's a family struggling with hospital bills to care for their sick child who is fighting an illness. There's a woman who is fighting breast cancer and is having trouble making ends meet while paying for their treatment. And there are burn victims that are going through treatments to heal their deep wounds. There is a charity in the horror community that helps these people. Scares That Care is an organization that helps families deal with the bills for their child. They help women get the treatment they need to fight breast cancer. And they help people who are dealing with severe burns get the help they need to heal. Scares That Care is a 100% volunteer organization and 501c3 nonprofit charity that is dedicated to helping these people in fighting real monsters. To find out more information or to donate to Scares That Care, you can go to www.scaresthatcare.org. Every donation helps Scares That Care fight real monsters. Welcome back. Now, last episode, I said I would review both AEW's Full Gear in WWE Survivor Series. Well, I have four segments each show, so guess what? This segment will feature both a review of AEW's Full Gear and WWE Survivor Series in about 20 minutes, hopefully, which I'm going to start right about now. Let's start off with AEW's Full Gear that took place on November 18th in Inglewood, California. Let me just run down the quick results. The pre-show started off with Eddie Kingston defending the Ring of Honor World Championship against Jay Lethal. Claudio Castanoli defeated Buddy Matthews. And the final match on the pre-show, MJF and Samoa Joe defended the ROH Tag Team titles by defeating the Guns. Post-match, the Guns attack MJF injuring his leg, which would be a story-long angle throughout this whole pay-per-view. The pay-per-view kicked off with Sting, Dobby Allen, and Adam Copeland defeating Christian Cage, Nick Wayne, and Luchasaurus. Orange Cassidy defended the AEW International Championship by defeating John Moxley. Timeless Tony Storm became the new AEW Women's World Champion. By defeating Hikaru Shida, Ricky Stocks, and Big Bill defended the AEW World Tag Team titles against La Faction and Gonables, FTR, and Kings of the Black Throne in a ladder match. 
Julia Hot defeated Chris Statlander in Sky Blue to become the AEW TBS champion. Swerve Strickland defeated Hangman Adam Page in a Texas Death Match. The Golden Jets defeated the Young Bucks. And in the main event, MJF defeated Jay White to retain the AEW World Championship. I'm going to quickly run down what I really liked about this pay-per-view because, well, I don't have much time to go into it since it was such a big COD. We'd be here for about 30 minutes between that COD in WWE Survivor Series. And I promise 20 minutes. I'm wasting time as is. Now, one of the things I liked about this pay-per-view in terms of matches was the four-way ladder match between FTR, Kings of the Black Throne, La Faction Inconables, and Ricky Stock's Big Bill. There was a lot of good high-flying action. There's a lot of insane stuff and intense moves. You had some really good spots in this match, including... Malachi Black slingshotting a ladder onto Cash Wheeler, who was coming off the ropes. You had Cash Wheeler hit Black with a pile driver on a ladder, which is cringeworthy. Brody King nailed a gonzo bomb on the ladder. There was a lot of insane stuff going on in this match. The match really came down to Ricky Stocks, Big Bill, and FTR as they were on the ladder. Malachi Black tries to come in to knock both of them off, but Big Bill was there to save Ricky Stocks, while Dax Howard fell off the ladder. Cash Wheeler would get on the ladder to fight with Stocks over the belts until Stocks knocked Wheeler off the ladder for the win. As Stocks grabbed both belts, threw Wonder Big Bill, and retained the AEW Tag Team Tells a really good ladder match. Another match I really thought was very good was the Texas Death Match between Adam Page and Swerve Strickland. In terms of build, this was definitely probably the best build-up matchup going into full gear. And this match really delivered on a big scale. If you love deathmatch wrestling, this is probably one of the best death matches you will see all year, as this was just nothing short of insanity. The match starts out out of nowhere as Adam Page rushes to the ring to attack Swerve Strickland and hits his finisher, the Buckshot Lariat on Strickland. As this is a Texas death match where it's either submission or knockout. That's it. At some point during the match, Strickland has his hands tied in duct tape. Page reduces staple gun on him. Stapling staples on his bare flesh, which is just cringeworthy. Remind me back of the old ECW days with New Jack and his staple gun. That was just cringeworthy. He would also include stapling a painting on him. That was just a disturbing spot. This... Pretty much led Swerve Strickland covered in his own blood. And in one of the most disgusting things I've seen in recent memory, Paige covers himself in Strickland's blood in almost vampirism. Literally, even draining the blood, which is 
It's just disgusting. Seriously. This is something I expect to see in Game Changer Wrestling or Extreme Pro Wrestling. Not All Elite Wrestling. But it did happen in All Elite Wrestling in 2023. As I bet no one had that on their wrestling bingo card. Vampirism in a wrestling match. At another point, Swerve Strickland would grab the stable gun and staple himself, which is another cringeworthy moment. That was just insane. Swerve would set a chair and throw Paige into the Bob the Wire chair, then use the wire. He also had a backdrop driver at one point on Paige onto a cinder block. And it's just insane move after insane move. You had a pile driver on top of the barricade in which Swerve Strickland hit Adam Page with. A pile driver on top of the barricade. That was just insane. Swerve would hit a powerbomb, then Swerve stop on Page on a Bob the Wire chair but couldn't put Page away. Swerve then threw glass on Adam Page's back and hits a 630 on the back of Adam Page. By then, it's just insanity's been lost. This is just beyond wrestling. As this is just deathmatch wrestling. At this point, as this match really felt like a deathmatch wrestling you would see in another promotion, not AEW. This is insanity. The finish comes when Brian Cage comes out and attacks Adam Page. Nana and Cage set a table, but Paige grabs a strand of barbed wire and uses it on Brian Cage. Prince Nana tries to get involved to no avail as he gets the dead eye through the table. This leaves Swerve and Strickland to use a cinder block to knock out Paige. When that doesn't work, Swerve uses a chain, throws it on the ring post and hangs Adam Page to choke him out. Drops him for the 10 count and the win. Very surprised Swerve Strickland won this match. But it's really showing that AEW is really behind Swerve Strickland here. As he's got two big wins now over Adam Page. One of the guys in AEW. That tells you something. That Swerve Strickland is probably a guy that's going to be getting to that main event scene very soon. It could be a challenger for MJF if they continue his title reign past Samoa Joe at World's End. And speaking of MJF, the main event, in what was probably so overbooked, as this was like a story-long pay-per-view in which MJF on the pre-show was being up by the guns, got injured post-match after he and Samoa Joe defended the Ring of Honor tag titles. The guns injured MJF. MJF gets sent to the hospital. Adam Cole there says he's going to challenge Jay White for the AEW World title in MJF's place. When that happened, when they announced that they're going to have Adam Cole versus Jay White for the AEW world title, I knew that match was not going to take place. Somehow MJF was going to come back and wrestle the match, obviously, because Adam Cole is still hurt. He's still injured. I never brought 
it for a second that he was going to wrestle Jay White at the pay-per-view. And I don't think anybody in that building brought that neither. But they ran with that angle. I guess, I don't know why they did that. Maybe to add more drama to the main event. But you clearly know Adam Cole is still injured. He's not wrestling. They're not going to throw an injured wrestler into the ring when the guy's on crutches. Let's face it, everyone. If a wrestler's on crutches, they're not throwing you into the ring. AEW's not that stupid. WWE's not that stupid. So once the match started and both Adam Cole and Jay White came out, video came up on the Tron showing MGF entering the arena, driving an ambulance. You know he was coming out for this match. The match itself was good because the psychology was good in that match. Jay White did a really good job working on the supposed MJF injured leg during the match. At some point during the match, his buddies, the gun club, got thrown out of ringside for trying to interfere. MJF would hit the kangaroo kick on White. He would also try to hit a dive, but White gets in the ring to his exposed leg. As White really did a good job of the psychology pond focusing on that exposed leg. At one point, he went to the top rope and hit a Uranagi off the top rope. The entering work was good in this match. It's just the fact that this was overbooked from start to finish. This whole feud was overbooked from start to finish. White would try to go for a Blade Runner to no avail a couple of times. MJF would hit a heat seeker to no avail. At one point, Adam Cole would go to hit White with the ROH tag belts, but White grabbed it and hits MJF with the belt for two. The finish came when White tried to go for the figure four, but MJF had the ropes. He pushes White into Bryce. Adam Cole gets the dynamite diamond ring and lays it on the mat for MJF. But Jay White gets it, but gets low-blowed by MJF, allowing MJF to get his ring back. The guns hit the ring, but MJF proceeds to hit the guns. Then Jay White with the ring. Then he covers White as the ref regains conscious and counts three counts. This was just an overbooked match. It did not need to be an overbooked match. I'm hearing people complain that this hurt Jay White. Well, Jay White's in the Continental Classic. If he does have a very good showing, like he's probably going to have a very good showing in that tournament, he's going to regain his heat. Let's face it. I think that's going to be one of their prerogatives during this Continental Classic, is to show everyone that Jay White gets back to where he was pre-MJF. Because this match was so overbooked that I can understand why the fans say that it hurts Jay White, but you get Jay White now in a tournament setting. He'll get his heat back. Watch. He's one of the best wrestlers in the world. He will get his top status back. Don't worry, this does not hurt Jay White much. You wanted to keep the title on MJF anyway, because you still got this prolonged storyline going on with Adam Cole, got Wardlow, in the storyline, you got Samoa Joe and whoever the devil is. So 
Don't worry. Jay White will get his heat back. Jay White could not win this title here. Because they needed to keep the title on MJF. And yes, I've heard the rumors that MJF has re-signed with AEW. Because WWE doesn't think they can sign him. So, MJF staying there. So there's more feuds and more stories to tell with MJF as champion. With that, this was a really great pay-per-view. Let alone stuff I couldn't get to. Including Orange Cassidy versus John Moxley was a very good match. I thought the three-way women's match for the TBS title was a very good match. I thought the Young Bucks Golden Jets match was very good as well. This was a very good pay-per-view. I know the main event was overbooked. I admit that. It could have done away with all the shenanigans. It didn't need the shenanigans. But this is Bullet Club, and that's what happens when you have Bullet Club gold around. You have shenanigans. Waiting in the wings. Just happens. Whether it's New Japan or AEW. It just happens. Overall, this is a great pay-per-view. Definitely go out of your way to check out Adam Page versus Swerve Strickland. As this was definitely a five-star pay-per-view. With full gear out of the way, let's move on to WWE Survivor Series War Games. That took place on November 25th, 2023. In... Chicago, Illinois. This premium live event only had five matches on the card. The whole card took about three hours. And you only had five matches on the card. It's ridiculous. This is the problem with WWE premium live events, people. They spend too much time promoting other stuff. And it's evident on this show, which I'll get to in a minute. Because you only have five matches. Why? Could probably squeeze a six match in if you weren't too busy promoting other stuff that isn't wrestling related. But this company, I don't get sometimes, seriously. But here are the results for Survivor Series 2023. Bianca Belair, Charlotte Flair, Shotzi, and Becky Lynch defeated Damage Control. Of Bailey, Asuka, Elo, Sky, and Kari Zayn in the women's war games match. Gunther defeated the Miz by submission to retain the intercontinental title. Santos Escobar defeated Dragon Lee. Rhea Ripley retained the women's world championship by defeating Zoe Stark. And in the main event, Cody Rhodes Seth Rollins, Jey Uso, Sami Zayn, and Randy Orton defeated the Judgment Day and Drew McIntyre in the Men's War Games match. I'm not going to get into all of this card, obviously, because I'm still trying to get under 20 minutes here. But this pay-per-view started off with the announcers introducing the pay-per-view in two bags of Ruffles chips. On the announcing desk. That is just such an eyesore. I'm sorry. I do not need to see product placement at the announcer's desk. This whole thing with product placement in wrestling is just a big, huge eyesore with WWE. AEW does it too, but they put out the wrestling mat. Which really doesn't make it a big deal, personally, for me. 
if it's on the wrestling mat, because I'm watching the wrestling. That's the most important thing. I am watching wrestling first. But to see the product placement on the side barricade Tron and everywhere in the building during the women's war games match and the women's championship match, it's just an eyesore. It takes away from my enjoyment of the match. I'm sorry, I don't need to see product placement in my wrestling matches. It's just an eyesore now. If they just put him on the wrestling mat, there'd be no problem. But putting it on the trons, it's just a huge eyesore. Because you're focused on that halfway when you're supposed to be fully focused on the action. Enough, I digress with the stupid product placement crap. This pay-per-view started off with a women's war games match. Becky Lynch started for Team Bel Air. Bailey started for Team Damage Control. This was a good five minutes as there's some good back and forth action between both Lynch and Bailey. Dakota Kai comes out of nowhere during this five minute interval and brings a kendo stick into the cage. Shotzi comes out next. She brings a trash can and cheers to the ring. Shotzi would hit a suicide dive between the ropes of the two rings. Bailey would try to escape the cage at one point, but Becky and Shotzi stop her. I don't get what Russell is trying to escape the cage in both the women's and men's matches. Because if you escape the cage, you forfeit the match for your team. It just looks stupid. That spot looked stupid in both of those matches with one member trying to escape the cage. There's no escaping the cage in a War Games match. And in the fact we saw it done twice where you had two people try to escape cages in both matches is ridiculous. Seriously. Once was enough. It's just stupid. Next, Elo Sky would come to the ring. She would bring a chain to the ring. Sky and Bailey would double team Becky. Bailey would work over Shotzi. Sky over Becky. The next entrant would be Bianca Belair. She would attack Sky. Then you should hear defend off Bailey, who is trying to go for a cheer shot attempt. Shotzi would hit a splash. Becky would hit a leg drop. Next to enter was Kari Zane. She would grab a trash can lid as she entered the match. She would use it on Shotzi and nail a drop kick on Becky with the trash can Van Daminator style. Damage control would bury Shotzi in cheers. Sky assists Zane in hitting a leg drop in midair. Charlotte Flair. She would come in the ring and clear house. Until Zayn and Bailey double teamed her. It was short lived as Flair would eventually get the upper hand. Becky and Flair would have a stare down until they got pushed into each other. Sky would climb to the top of the cage. She would bring a chain down to Dakota Kai to bring up a trash can. Sky would put the trash can on her and do a crossbody off the top of the cage in a spot. Wiping everyone out. Oscar would come in as the last entrant and bring kendo sticks 
table and a fire extinguisher into the match. Damage control would get the upper hand. They would chain Becky and Belair together at one point to hit stereo drop kicks. Oscar would spit Miss into Shotzi and hit a missile drop kick on Becky for a two count. They would beat up on Team Belair until Belair and Becky hit stereo power bombs. Flair would go to the top of the cage and hit a moonsault for a two count. Becky and Flair would start to clean house. The action was pretty much quick and fast. Shotzi and Belair would hit a dropkick electric chair combo on one of the members of damage control for a two count. Flair went to spear Zane, but Bailey pushed Zane out of the way to take the spear. Then Shotzi would hit a diving swanton onto Bailey. Then Belair would hit the KOD on Bailey. Then Becky would hit the manhandled slam. Off the top rope through a table on Bailey for the pinfall in a very good match. As both the War Games matches were good, it's just I could not take the fact that there were a couple of wrestlers trying to escape the cage in this match when there's no escaping the cage allowed. That made no sense. Seriously. But I'll go into the other one later on. Then we see various wrestlers promote ruffles. As if we haven't seen more ruffles promotion. In the first half hour of this premium live event. You had the intro. You had it on the LED boards throughout the women's war games match. And you had a vignette with various wrestlers eating Ruffles potato chips. This is why I can't get with WWE half the time in their premium live events. I'm sorry. This is why I can't get with WWE. The fact that they insert these promotions for other companies into their premium live events. It doesn't feel like a wrestling event. I'm sorry. Call me old school. It was announced that January 27th would be the date for the Royal Rumble. As it will be taking place in Tampa, Florida. We cut to a backstage promo with Sami Zayn and Jay Uso. They are wondering where Randy Orton is is, as he's not in the building yet. That seemed to be the theme during the course of the premium live event. Another good match, which I thought was a sleeper on this card, was Sando Escobar versus Dragon Lee. I thought the match had a lot of good back and forth action as both Escobar and Dragon Lee worked very well together. At one point, Escobar would hit a high kick on Lee on the top rope. He would also hit her corona off the top rope for a two count. Escobar would try and go and grab the mask of Dragon Lee. Getting some serious heel heat here. Dragon Lee would hit Escobar with a double stop while Escobar was perched on the middle rope. Escobar and Lee would trade running knees which led Lee to hit a powerbomb for a two count. The finish came when... Escobar hit the South of the Border Destroyer and the Phantom Driver in sequence for the win, which was a very cool way to finish a match, quite frankly. And it really was a very good match by both of them, as it was a good Lucha-style match and one of the best matches on the card. We got another promotion. Slim Jim promotion in this. I don't get it. We had the New Day come out at one point during this pay-per-view with 
in a Slim Jim racing car. Then you had Slim Jim sponsored the women's championship match, which was a complete eyesore. As I'm sick of this product placement in WWE premium live events. I'm sorry. I'm sick of it. I want to see wrestling. I don't want to see company logos distracting my wrestling. Put it on the ring mat. Don't put it on the LED boards. Please. That's distracting. Quite frankly, I'm sick of it. Anyway, I don't have time to review the women's championship match because I have the segment is running over as it is. So I have to move on to the men's war games match. And that was a really good match. Match started off with Seth Rollins and Finn Balor. Good back and forth action as Balor and Rollins had good chemistry with each other. As the first five minutes moved at a very good pace. J.D. McDonough would be next. He would hit Rollins with a kendo stick as he entered into the cage. Then brought another stick into the cage. Both McDonough and Balor would use kendo sticks on Rollins. Most of the offense in the, this three-minute interval was them using kendo sticks. The next person to enter was Jey Uso. He would grab a chair from ringside. He would attack both Balor and McDonough. McDonough would hit a one-man Spanish fly at one point. Rollins would continue to fight with Balor. At the end of the interval, Drew McIntyre would try to inject himself into this match. But Damian Priest stopped him, and he was the next to enter the cage. As this is thing going around where Drew McIntyre wants to get his hands on Jey Uso. And he didn't get out. In at number three, it was Damian Priest. Priest would help Judgment Day get the upper hand. Next, Balor would hit Uso with a steel chair. Next center would be Sami Zayn. He would be met by JD McDonough, but takes away his kendo stick, then would slam the door on Balor, then bring a table into the match. At one point, Zayn would climb to the top to get a lead pipe and use it. On all members of Judgment Day, Team Road to take control until Drew McIntyre came in. He would beat up Rollins and Zayn and had his laser eyes set to Jay Uso. Those two would battle back and forth. At one point, McIntyre would go for the Claymore, but Uso would counter and hit a, a super kick. Cody Rhodes would enter next. He would attack Judgment Day. Then underneath the ring apron pulls out a bull rope. After Rollins and Rhodes use the bull rope, Rollins asks Rhodes if Randy is coming because we still don't know if Randy Orton's gonna show up. Even though he's, we all know he's gonna show up. Next to enter would be Dominic Mysterio. He would start attacking Team Rhodes, but then get ganged up by Team Rhodes. The rest of Team Judgment Day would save Mysterio and attack Team Rhodes. Cool spot during this interval when McIntyre and Priest would set Rhodes, Zane, and Rollins up for a triple choke slam in stereo sequence. Priest would hit a razor's edge on Rollins through the table. The clock hits zero. Nobody comes out. Rhea Ripley comes out with the Money in the Bank briefcase. So that Damian Priest can cash in on Seth Rollins. 
but before Ripley was able to cash in that briefcase for Priest, voices played and Randy Orton hit the ring and cleans house, which will lead to a Orton McIntyre stay down. This would lead Judgment Day to get on the attack. We had Team Rhodes doing the Orton trademark DDT off the ropes. Uso and Orton had to stay down. Uso would super kick Priest. Mysterio get RKO. And the baby face team would hit the trademark moves. JD McDonough would try and escape the cage. And again, like I said in the first War Games match, it's a stupid logic. Because if you escape the cage, you forfeit the match for the team. But I don't know why you needed another spot. But then again, it led to one of the most highlight RKOs of all time. McDonald would try to escape the cage, but Zane and Rollins would chase him up there. Then Orton would direct traffic and have Zane and Rollins throw McDonough into Randy Orton waiting to hit that RKO, which was a highlight reel RKO. Then Cody Rhodes would hit Crossroads on Damian Priest for the win. Team Rhodes would celebrate in the ring until CM Punk comes out to end the premium live event. And no, I'm not going to get into what happened afterwards with Seth Rollins being so angry and everything because that looks like it's a work and not worth my time. Or the fact that Drew McIntyre stormed out at the end of the match. That also seems like a work as well. Overall, what's hurting WWE's premium live events is this advertising. Because this show was a very good show. But I have to give it a half-star deduction because I felt like the advertising for the Women's War Games match and the Women's Championship match was just a big eyesore. It took me away from the match at times. It's great you're trying to sell me a product, but do not try to sell me a product while I'm watching wrestling. If you're going to try to sell me a product, put it on the wrestling mat, not on the LED board. I definitely recommend you check out Sando Escobar versus Dragon Lee in the men's war games match. Four and a half stars. Well, so much for 20 minutes or less as this episode has gone off format. Yeah, I probably knew it was going off format after the lengthy full gear review. But what can you say? I love wrestling. And it shows in my reviews. And I didn't want to shortchange WWE Survivor Series neither. So, there you go. I will be back with What's Anthony T Watching. You can follow Anthony T's Horror Wrestling Show on these social media providers. At Anthony T's Horror Wrestling on Facebook, Instagram, and Slasher app. You can find Anthony T's Horror Wrestling Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast providers. You can also listen to the podcast at youtube.com slash at filmrkmedia and docdiscussions.com. What's Anthony T watching this episode? Well, Anthony T is watching the latest film from Eli Roth. Yes, you know the director from Hostel... 
and Cabin Fever. Well, he has a new movie out called Thanksgiving that is in theaters or coming to VOD whenever this airs, quite frankly, because nowadays with release windows, you have this thing on VOD like 30 days, 45 days after its release date. So whatever, if it's in theaters or VOD, I can still talk about it. That's the fun thing about this new release window thing. Because if you see like a movie like two weeks before an episode airs, you can still review the movie because the movie will be available at least on VOD. And hopefully by this episode, Thanksgiving is at least on VOD. Or in theaters still. It could be. Because I did see it in its opening weekend. Thanksgiving is a film that I've been really looking forward to since way back in, say, 2007 when there was a movie called Grindhouse. You might not know this film. This is a film that featured Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror and Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof and that double bill of two horror films on the big screen. More like a recreation of the drive-in Days, that was the whole gimmick behind the film Grindhouse. And in the middle of those two films, there were fake trailers. Rob Zombie did a fake trailer. Edgar Wright did a fake trailer. And Eli Roth also did a fake trailer for the film called Thanksgiving. And it was probably one of the most well-received things about that film ever since that fake trailer Eli Roth came out during that Grindhouse film. Horror fans have been clamoring for a Thanksgiving film. Has this been sort of a cult following on this fake trailer to the point where Eli Roth has been trying to make this film for a while. And a lot of people like me thought it was never going to happen after like five, six years. And pretty much gave up on it. Until news started trickling in last year. Early this year. That Eli Roth was finally doing Thanksgiving. It took about a good what? 15, 16 years to get this film. But we finally get this film in 2023. Man it's just so amazing how time flies. I remember seeing Grindhouse back in the theater. In fact, I saw the film twice in theaters. Even in the days where you had the dollar cinema. Grindhouse was playing. I would go see it again at a dollar cinema. You know, the second run cinemas. Where it's usually $2, $2, $3. But I digress. As Let's get to the review of this film. As I know you've been wanting to hear my thoughts on this film. And I really thought this was a really good film. And very well worth the wait. It's different from the fake trailer. But going in I had a feeling it was going to be different. As some of the stuff that Eli Roth did in that trailer back in 2007. Would not fly today on the big screen. This isn't Terrifier, people. I'm sorry. But some of the stuff in that trailer 
back in 2007 would not be in a major studio film. But anyway, I really enjoyed Thanksgiving. Eli Roth's direction was very good, as this is probably one of his best films. One of the things I really liked about this film was the fact that Roth does a really good job directing the action in this film. He really makes it sure that the action has this intense feel to it. I like how he also really directs the cast here. As for the most part, they were good. As it had some very good performances from its film's leads, Patrick Dempsey and Nell Verlach. If I'm pronouncing it right. If I'm not, I apologize. The film also has some very good supporting performances from Karen Kleech as Catherine and Rick Hoffman as Thomas Wright. Besides the acting, Eli Roth also really makes sure that he has a lot of gore in this film, as this is pro- very gory. Probably one of the goriest films of the year, quite frankly. As this really delivers on the kill scenes, it has a very good opening sequence, which I'm not telling you about because I want you to see this film. And, and from there, it was just balls to the walls, action, gore, intensity. That's why I want to see in a horror film. I don't want to see a film get dragged down by stupid plot points or things that are so dull that it really takes the fun out of it. But Thanksgiving is just a very fun film from start to finish. It also helps that film has a very good screenplay. I liked how they did the whole whodunit mystery thing. With this film, as this is based on a story from Eli Roth and Jeff Rendell, who's also the screenwriter for this film. Rendell did a good job with the way he wrote the characters in this film. As I thought all the characters were written. I liked how Rendell was created in the way he wrote the death scenes. Because there are some really good, cool death scenes in this film. And Rendell makes sure that those scenes really stand out. Because if those scenes don't stand out, you're not going to have an effective slasher film. As this is a slasher film, you have to have really good death scenes for a slasher film to succeed. And this does. Plus a good story as well. You have to have both of those elements for that to succeed. Thanksgiving does that very well. I also love how the screenplay makes sure some of the moments had some intensity to it. Especially that whole third act of this film which is crazy and intense and gory. That's why I want to see in my slasher films. I do not want to see a slasher film to the point where things just slow down to the point where you just don't know if you really want to see this film. You want your slasher films to be fun. You don't want your slasher films to be dumb or boring. And Thanksgiving was a fun film, literally. As that script was very good, I thought. And it really is a very effective film. Because I may not be the biggest Eli Roth fan, but this is by far his best film. When you take into the factors that 
It's very well directed. The action is very good. He directs his cast very well. I cannot help it to say this is Eli Roth's best film. And I really think that this film will have a cult following in the years to come. If it doesn't do well in the box office. Because Thanksgiving is an entertaining, fun slasher film. Which will catch on somewhere. I can guarantee you that. There's not many Thanksgiving horror films. So this could easily be a cult classic film for the years to come. With great writing from Jeff Riddell. Great direction from Eli Roth. And an intense story. Thanksgiving is one horror film that makes you want to have more leftovers or multiple viewings. Five stars. This is the last new episode of this year. As usually the last episode of every year is a best of episode. So next episode will be a best of episode. I'll include maybe a wrestling take or two next episode as well. As I've never done that in a best of show, I don't believe. So I will have one of those. At least maybe two. Some SAG strike material as well. And other stuff that I can come up with. That's next episode. Then episode 109 will be the first episode of 2024. It will be the Horror Show Awards and Horror Show Whammies. Where it's the year-end awards episode... Where the Horror Show Awards highlights the excellence in horror, in my opinion, in 2023. While the Horror Show Whammies, well, highlights the worst of 2023 in various categories. Then after that episode will be the best of 2023 episode. Where I will bring a guest on to talk about the top 10 films of 2023. So... January is usually reserved for those two episodes. If you like this podcast, don't forget to like this podcast, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and other major podcast providers. You can also follow the podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and the Slasher app at Anthony and Wrestling. With that, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a good day. Support indie wrestling. Support indie horror. This has been a Film Arcade Media production.